Well, in 2 Corinthians 10.4, we're told the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Warren Wiersbe says the Apostle Paul wrote those words to the believers in Corinth, reminding them of a principle that every believer needs to take heart. And that principle is when God goes to war, he usually chooses the most unlikely soldiers, hands them the most unusual weapons, and accomplishes through them the most unpredictable results. As we've been going through our series in Judges, we've seen examples of this. And in the series ahead, we're going to see even more. When we get to Judges chapter 15, we're going to see where Samson will slaughter a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. In chapter 7, Gideon will rout the Midianite army using pitchers and torches. In chapter 4 that we're going to see next week, we're going to meet a woman named Jael who will kill the commander of the enemy army with a hammer and a tent peg. As we turn today in Judges chapter 3, we're going to see two other examples of unlikely soldiers who will use unlikely weapons as they are used by God. So I invite you to look with me now at Judges chapter 3, where I want to begin reading in verses 12 through 14. It says, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and he defeated Israel. And they possessed the city of the palm trees, and the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. You know, it's been said that those who fail to learn from history are destined to repeat it. And as we've been going through Judges, we've seen this same five-step cycle of sin three times now, and we're told here it repeats itself. The Israelites sin, they turn their back on God, and as a result, they go into a time of captivity. They're made slaves to a, a conquering enemy. And after a period of time, they will cry out in supplication, asking God to deliver them. And he responds in his grace by sending a deliverer, a judge, who will bring salvation to the people. And as they Uh, are freed from the oppressor, then there is a time of silence. There's rest in the land. But then the same sad cycle repeats itself. And here in verses 12 and 14, we see where Israel once again chooses to sin against God. And God disciplines his people by letting them experience the consequences as Eglon, the king of Moab, brings this Canaanite coalition to invade the land. Uh, Moab and Ammon, as you see on this map, are located to the east And the uh, Amalekites are down to the southern area of the land that God was giving to Israel. Uh, This box that you see shows the area that was conquered, and it it encompasses uh, the territory of three of the tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, we're told that they crossed the Jordan River, and they set up their headquarters in the city of Palms. That's another name for Jericho, and that's actually in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin, which is why that's where the deliverer will be raised up from. Now, the simple fact that the Jews were again living in Jericho shows that the people were again disobeying God, doing what they wanted rather than what God said, because as you read Joshua 6.26, what you see is that they were told not to rebuild the city that God had destroyed. And now it becomes the enemy headquarters uh, as they come into the land, this, this Canaanite coalition. In verse 14, we see that Israel has to suffer for 18 years before they finally turn back to God. And when they do, when they cry out to God in supplication, we see in verse 15 where God responds by raising up a deliverer to save them. 
As it says, but when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now, it's interesting, it's a bit of irony that the deliverer here is a lefty because the name Benjamin literally means son of my right hand. Uh, Now, in my family, my wife and my oldest daughter are lefties. Uh, If you're a lefty, raise, raise your hand. Okay, as you look around, you see there's some lefties among us, but they're in the minority. And uh, that's usually the way it is. In fact, there are more lefties in our time than there were a generation or two ago because some of you are old enough to remember that uh, parents and teachers, if you had a left-handed child, they would kind of force the child to use their right hand. And uh, some of that was just, you know, the, the negative connotation in our culture or uh, the lack of scissors or other things that were available, uh, as my wife and daughter constantly remind me. Uh, but being a lefty does have some negative connotations in different cultures around the world. In fact, the French word for left is gauche, and that word means tactless, awkward, or in bad taste. Now remember, I have two ladies I love who are lefties, so I'm not disparaging lefties. I'm just giving you the background here. Uh, The Latin word for left is sinister, which has the meaning of wicked or evil. And our English word for left comes from the Old English, which had a meaning of weak. So you can see that being a lefty in different cultures has some negative connotation, but it also has positive things associated with it. In the world of sports, being a lefty has great advantages. You've heard of southpaw pitchers. Uh, or switch hitters who bat from the left, and they typically can wreak havoc on those who are normally used to facing right-handers. In boxing, again, a lefty has an advantage, as most are used to fighting a right-handed opponent, and they defend that way. And in ancient warfare, it was the same thing. Most warriors were right-handed, so soldiers would hold their shields and uh, fight in a way that they were going against right-handed warriors. So if you had a skilled left-handed warrior, they could cut through a line uh, because people were not used to defending that way. So when we read here that Ehud is left-handed, it gives us a tip that there is a strength to this. Now, as I mentioned that there's a strength associated with it, when you read this in the original Hebrew text, there's actually a weakness that is attached here. It tells us Ehud had a severe limitation. Because the way the Hebrew literally reads here is that Ehud was bound in his right hand or restricted to his right hand. So what that's telling us is Ehud's not one of these celebrated ambidextrous warriors who can use his right and left hand, uh, but it's the fact that his right hand doesn't work. We're not told what the disability is. We're not told what the injury was. uh, But he had a crippled right hand, and it was unable to be used in a way to wield a weapon. And so when we read this here, the world would say that this one-handed man was at a disadvantage. But as we're about to see in God's hands, Ehud's disability was about to become his greatest ability. Verses 16 through 22 tell us, And Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And it came about when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal. And he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, keep silence. 
And all who attended him left him. And he who came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And he who said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And he who stretched out his left hand took the sword from his right thigh and he thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not draw the sword out of his belly and the refuse came out. And some people say the Bible's boring right? (laughs) Now, as we read how Ehud kills Eglon here, the first thing we're told is there's various details. One is that it says there's a sword he had made. Now, it's really a dagger because a cubit is 18 inches long. And so this isn't a big sword. It's it's, it's more of a smaller, it's in fact smaller than 18 inches because the, the Hebrew word used here is gomed, which describes something a foot long. So basically what you have is a prison shank. Uh, In this day, the Israelites did not have weapons. When the Moabites and others took over, they they took all the weapons from the people. And so the only metal that was left was typically what you would find with farm implements or a tool that was used. And so what we're told is Ehud goes and he takes a piece of metal, maybe off a plow or some implement, and he sharpens it on both sides. He would have wrapped something around so he wouldn't cut his hand. Uh, as I said, he pr- basically makes a, a prison shank, which he, he straps to the inner part of his right, his right thigh. And as Ehud and the other Jews bring their tribute to the palace, what would happen is the guards would obviously check them for weapons. Now, this isn't like our day where TSA has a metal detector. You walk through, the thing beeps. Uh, they would have had to do a pat-down. And as Ehud uh, comes up, they see this this guy's crippled. Uh, he's, he's a one-armed basically useless arm over here. So they're looking at him. They maybe laugh at him. They think, well, this guy's no big threat. And they they do a quick pat down where he could have had a a weapon on his left side, and they say he's clear, and and they move on to the other ones. And as as they enter in to present the tribute, um, we're told in verse 20, again, looking at the Hebrew here, it tells us this is the summer palace. And what that means is, it was the, the hot time of the year, and the king would have moved to the coolest place available in the land. And so he's, it, it's telling us it's hot outside, which means it's also hot in the throne room, because the throne room would have been an interior room. And it would have been enclosed in. They would have you know, tried to impress people, so it would have had all kinds of uh, thick wall hangings and ornate stuff. The king would have been up on an elevated platform, He would have been wearing all his ceremonial robes as the people came in before him. They didn't have electric lights, so that means they would use torches for light in this interior room. So the heat and the smoke is rising to the the ceiling area where the king is up on this elevated platform. And we were told he's a very fat uh, man. And so you can imagine that Eglin is just up there sweltering. He's covered in thick robes, there's heat and smoke, there's this interior room, there's no breeze, and the guy is just sweltering. And the the Jews come in, they prostrate themselves on the ground, they're presenting the tribute, and they're saying, may you have a long life, and the king's thinking, you guys just want to take my life, Uh, but he doesn't know that one of them actually has the means to do it with this, this shank that he has. Now, as all this is happening, we don't know why Ehud doesn't act at that time. It it could be the guards were too close. It might have been that he was worried that if he attacks the king, everybody else who was with him would be killed, and he didn't want them to lose their life. 
Uh, it could be he simply loses his nerve. Whatever the reason, we're told that they present the tribute and then they leave. The captain of the guard is escorting uh, the Jews back as far as Gilgal. Now, in chapter 1 of Judges, we talked about Gilgal. You'll remember this was a very significant place. It was the place where the Israelites renewed their covenant with God. Gilgal is where we're told there were stones of remembrance, a memorial that had been set up as the Jews crossed the Jordan River at flood stage and God dried it up and allowed them to cross in. You'll remember they went back and got 12 stones and set up an altar, a memorial, and everybody who would see these stones would say, what is this for? And it would be an opportunity to speak of the faithfulness of God and how he had uh, brought the people into the land. As we find in Joshua 4.20, that's where the 12 stones of remembrance are. But those reminders of God's faithfulness have been removed, and they've been replaced with a pagan uh, a shrine to the pagan gods because the Hebrew of verse 19 says there were sculptured stones or idols. And as Ehud is coming through Gilgal, as he sees these pagan idols, his heart is stirred and he suddenly remembers what God had called him to do, the assignment he had been given to go and take out this enemy king. And so he turns to the captain of the guard who's escorting them and he says, I need to go back to see the king. I have a message from the gods. God has a message for the king and I must deliver it. Now, he uses the word Elohim. Elohim, God has many different names, and some, uh, like Elohim, El is the name for God, Im is a plural ending. So Elohim could speak of the true God of heaven, but it was also used at times of the pagan gods. So Ehud isn't tipping his hand here. He doesn't say Jehovah or Yahweh has a message for this pagan king. He says the God or gods have a message. And the captain takes Ehud back to the, the palace. We're told the rest of the people leave. And when he gets there, they, a message is sent in to the king, and they say, uh, Ehud's returned. And the king says, why? And he says, well, God has a message for you. Now, the king is curious. He wants to know what the message is, but he can't stand the thought of getting back in his robes, going back down into that blistering hot room. And so he says, just bring him up to me on the roof. At the summer palace, it would have had a, a kind of a veranda area with a pergola and moving slats that would block the sun, but it would also let the breeze come through. It's called the cool room. So he's up there on the, the, the coolest part of the palace, and he says, I'm not going back in that sweat box. Bring him up here. And so he comes up to this roof chamber, and he tells the king, this is a secret message. You don't want anybody else to hear this. So the king says, well, keep silent. And he tells the guards, you need to leave. You need to get out. Now they look at this one-handed crippled guy and they've already, remember, patted him down. He's been in the presence of the, the guard the entire time. So they're like, he's no threat. Fine, and they leave. And as the king, leads in, as the king leans in to hear the message from the gods, Ehud makes sure the king gets the point of the message as he pulls his weapon, Right? And the description is graphic as we read, and Eglon dies. Verse 23 says, Then Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Imagine how hard that was if you were Ehud. You've just stabbed this king. You've buried this shank in him. As the king falls over, the sword is buried in his body, so there's no clank of metal as he goes to the ground. 
And as he's leaving, he locks the inner doors, pulls them shut, and he walks out calm. And he says, oh, you know, the king, the king just needs a minute. And then he calmly leaves. Now, as the attendants go back, verse 24 says, And behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked, and they said he is only relieving himself in the cool room. Now, remember the king's intestines had been ruptured. We read the graphic description of all the stuff coming out. You're in this slatted room where there's a breeze. They can smell uh, this going on. The doors are locked, and they think, oh, the king's in the bathroom. You know, just let him, let him have a moment. They don't want to disturb the king. Verse 25 says they waited to the point of embarrassment. Now, there's a little bit of humor in the text here. It would be like uh, the times you've banged on a bathroom door saying, did you fall in? You know, come on, get out. And they're waiting and waiting, and finally they say, you know, I think we need to go in and help the king. So verses 26 through 29 tell us, Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. And it came about when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. And he said to them, Pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. And they struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. Now the river fords are kind of the places where the bridges or paths, you know, rocks or logs, whatever were designed so people would come and go through there. It not only cut off the escape route, but it also prevented reinforcements from being brought in. And as we're reading about the victory here, I want you to notice that even though Ehud killed the king, even though Ehud has led the the people in battle, he doesn't say, hey, look what I did. Instead, what he says, look to God. He gives the rightful glory to God as he says, the Lord has given your enemies into your hands. Now, you'll notice the word Lord in your Bible is in all capital letters. Whenever you see in an English Bible, Lord in all capital letters, that tells you that it is the name Yahweh. Jehovah, it's the Tetragrammaton, the, the holiest name of God, and it's translated in all capitals to tell you. So he doesn't say Elohim, a generic name. He says the Lord, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, the one who has been faithful to you when you have been unfaithful to him. He's pointing the people back to God. And as the people turned to the Lord, God was waiting to redeem them, and he gives them rest in the land from their enemies, as we see in verse 30. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. As they turn from their sins and back to God, God again, once again sets them free. And this is the longest period of rest we're going to see in the entire book of Judges. Eight decades, 80 years. And some of you this morning find yourself in a place where you're longing for a period of rest and silence in your life. You may be like the Israelites where you've been in a a season of sin. And maybe God has moved you into a time of consequence or discipline trying to bring you back to himself. And as you're struggling under that, uh, what God is doing is not saying I'm through with you, I'm done with you. But as we talked about last week, he's trying to drive you back to himself. And God says if you will move from that cycle of sin to slavery to supplication where you cry out to God. You say, God, I've blown it. I've walked away from you. Or, God, I've never come to you. And today I want to come home. 
God will raise up a deliverer for you. He already has. His name was Jesus Christ, and he went to the cross to pay the penalty of death for your sins and mine. God said, you were far from me because of your disobedience, because of your sin. You owe a consequence and a penalty. But rather than being left separated from God, he sent Jesus to die for you and me, to deliver us, to bring us rest, not just for eternity when we get home to heaven, but in this day in the midst of the broken world in which we live. The Bible tells us we live in a broken and sinful, sin-filled world And yet Jesus Christ said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. He wants you to have rest. He wants you to have peace, even in the midst of the storm, as we've seen in this series. Now, this period of rest, as I said, goes on for 80 years, the longest period of peace in the book of Judges. And remember that God brought this about through the life of a man that some would say could not be used because of a limitation in his life. So you think about your own life this morning. Do you feel unable to be used by God because of some limitation? Some limitation that you have, whether it's uh, a physical, an intellectual one, maybe one where you've done damage to yourself through past mistakes. God isn't done with you. God can use you in spite of your past. In fact, that's what he specializes in, rewriting our stories. E.M. Bounds once said, the church is looking for better methods while God is looking for better men. Hudson Taylor, who was the great leader of the China Inland Mission, was once asked why he was chosen to lead that ministry. And Taylor replied, God chose me because I was weak enough. God does not do his great works by large committees. He trains somebody to be quiet enough and little enough, and then he uses him. Martin Luther said that God made the world out of nothing, and as long as you are nothing, God can make something out of you. The picture you see up on the screen is of a lady named uh, Joni Erickson Tata. Many of you probably know her story. In 1967, she was a a healthy 17-year-old young lady who dove into the Chesapeake Bay. And as she went into the water, she hit a submerged rock, which crushed her spine and instantly made her a quadriplegic. Joni is a, a woman who has been used in amazing ways throughout her lifetime as an author, an artist, as a speaker, as a person who has founded ministries like uh, Johnny and Friends to reach into the disabled community. And she's written many books, and in one of them she says every morning, she's telling her story, she says every morning somebody has to give me a bath in bed, dress me, lift me into a wheelchair, comb my hair, brush my teeth, fix my breakfast, cut up my food and feed me. When it comes to the day-to-day routines of dealing with the paralysis, at worst, it's depressing. At best, it's boring. She says, now I can't live with those flat facts. I have to turn them by God's grace into something that has meaning and purpose. In a way, I'm somewhat blessed by my circumstances because I'm forced to lean on God whether I like it or not. My choices are limited When I'm lying in bed paralyzed, gravity is my enemy. In bed, I can't move at all. I I, I can only move uh, enough to turn my head on the pillow. She said it really was a bed of affliction to me. Some years ago, somebody put a plaque by my bed with the verse that says, Be still and know that I am God. I looked at that verse and thought, Well, here I am being still physically. (laughs) 
Maybe, she says, these are the structural boundaries that God is placing on me and pushing against me that I might see some other kind of stillness that is deeper. Now, many years later, it's not a bed of affliction anymore. It's become an altar of praise. This physical enforcement of stillness has caused something in my life that wouldn't happen if I were on my feet and running around. Perhaps I'd be putting the third kid to bed or folding the second load of laundry or emptying the dishwasher, but I wouldn't be praying. If I didn't have these physical limitations, my time in prayer would be limited. And as we let those words linger for a moment, what Joni, Johnny is telling us is how our freedoms and abilities sometimes can be a limitation. As we forget our need for God or we get too busy to spend time with him. And as you think of the life story of that lady, it, it highlights like what we just saw with Ehud, where uh, what the world would say is a limitation became the greatest ability in God's hands. With Johnny, she taps into the unlimited power source that God gives her through prayer. And as she's turned to God in dependence, he's given her, as I said, many platforms. She can draw and paint by putting uh, a brush or a pencil in her mouth. She is a a world-renowned speaker. She is a person who has written books and touched the lives of countless people, as I said, even through the disability community with her ministry of Johnny and Friends. You know, at Wayside, we have ministries that reach into this area of the, the need in the community as well. We have a ministry here at Wayside called Embracing Abilities. Some of you may have heard of it, and if you are not aware of it, let me highlight it for you. Uh, we have families in our church with special needs individuals, those sometimes physically, sometimes intellectually. And as families come to worship on a Sunday, we uh, have a shepherd who will come alongside our, our special needs individuals. And that's for two reasons. One is to integrate the person fully into the community of Wayside as they're able to go to classes or worship. It's also to give the family a respite who have been giving and caring all week for their loved ones, and it gives them an opportunity just to to rest and, and be refilled as well. If you're a person who would love to be a part of that ministry or a family that has a need like that and you're unaware of it, just go to our website, waysidechapel.org, and type in Embracing Abilities. And as you type in Embracing Abilities, uh, it'll pull up a form for you, and you can fill that out so that we know what the, the particular needs are that you have. We have other individuals here in our church who serve in a ministry called Young Life Capernaum. And this is a ministry that serves uh, high school and college uh, and young singles who have uh, intellectual or physical disabilities. On Thursday nights, we have a ministry that we partner with for Young Life called Deaf Young Life. And over outside of these doors, some of you may not know it, we own a number of the houses over there on Ivywood Circle. And in 104, uh, in 107 Ivywood is where Deaf Young Life meets. It's a high school ministry. And then over in 104 Ivywood, we have an American Sign Language class where people are learning how to uh, communicate with the deaf community. So if you're interested in either of those, we'd love for you to be a part of it. Uh, we partner with Aid the Silent. Emma Faye is here on the front row. Uh, She has a ministry called Aid the Silent, and uh, she would love for you to know more about it. Just go online and Google that. They, in fact, have a uh, gala. It's this coming Saturday, so 
uh, that would be a great thing for you to be introduced to the ministry and also find out how you can support it. Uh, at our 915 service, we have a deaf translation of the, the music and the sermon that takes place right over here. And so if you're somebody who's a certified ASL teacher, we need people with a very high level. Uh, we have a great volunteer team that does that. This is a way, again, you can be uh, involved in communicating God's word to some of the least served in our city. As you look at your life, is there something that you have that you think is a limitation that is keeping you from being used by God? If you think there is, read through the Bible. You will find all kinds of men and women that the world would say, God can't use them. They're damaged or they have a past that disqualifies them from being used by God. Let me just highlight some of the things uh, that we find in the Bible where people would say uh, it limits this person's ability to be used. Abraham was too old. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses had a stuttering problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson had long hair and was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah cried all the time. And David had an affair and was a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Jonah ran away from God. Naomi was a widow. And Job went bankrupt. Peter denied Christ. Martha was worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced multiple times. Zacchaeus was too small, Paul was too religious, and Timothy was too young. If you still think God can't use you, look at what 1 Corinthians one twenty six through 30 tells us. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. You know, the only thing that can keep us from being used by God is an unwilling heart, an unwillingness to turn to Christ, And to turn our life over to him and say, God, use me. Use me however you want. As we look at verse 31, we find another example of an unlikely person who was used by God. It says, And after him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. Now, we've just talked about the deliverance. Uh, under Ehud, but remember there was 12 tribal territories. And what we're reading about here is over in another part uh, where the Philistines were becoming a problem, God raises up this guy named Shamgar. Now, right now, it's just kind of hit and run raiders. When we get to chapters 13 through 16 in Judges, the Philistines are going to be the primary oppressors in the land. But right now, there's just these raiding parties that are coming in and making things difficult. And it, and it was a big problem. It was dangerous because as you read in Judges 5, 6, or 7, it says it wasn't safe to go out on the streets. Now, to help them, God raises up Shamgar, the son of Anath. And as we look at his name, it tells us a, a lot about his family. 
and how his family had fallen under the pagan influence in the land because Shamgar is not a Jewish name. It doesn't have any Hebrew connection. In fact, it's of Hittite or Hurrian origin. And when you look at his dad's name, Anath, that's the name of one of the false pagan Canaanite gods. And so this tells you that this is a family uh, that where people were not being raised to know and worship the Lord. And some of you come from a background like that. Maybe you were raised in a home where nobody knew the Lord. You weren't brought to church. You weren't taught to worship the true God. And yet you're here, or you're worshiping and listening in online today. And just as God did with Shamgar, he can redeem you. He can change your story. He can rewrite your your, your future as you give yourself to him. Now, sometimes the reverse happens. Maybe you've grown up with a godly heritage. You were raised in a home to know and love the Lord, but you've walked away from God. You become that prodigal son or daughter where you've turned your back on God. And again, God's not done with you. As we saw, if you're in that cycle where you've gone from sin to slavery, God says, go to supplication, cry out to me, repent, confess your sins, turn to me, and I will, I will rewrite your story as well. God is waiting for you to come home. There's nothing you've done in your life, men and women, boys and girls, that God can't forgive. God tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. As I said, there's nothing you've done that can keep you from God. If you will humble yourself and turn to him and cry out, he's waiting to save you. If we're willing to do as Shamgar did and follow God, you can be used by him. Shamgar not only came from a pagan home, but he would have been poor. He would have been a peasant farmer in the field. And we know that from the weapon that he uses. It's called an ox goad. An ox goad was a a stick, a pole, that was about eight feet long, and on one end was a metal tip. And as you were plowing in the field, you would take this pole and prod or goad the ox with it, if it didn't want to move or was trying to turn the wrong way. And on the other end of this eight-foot-long stick was a a little piece of metal that was used as a chisel to clean the plow, uh, clean the the clumps and the dirt and stuff out of it. So here's a guy with an everyday tool that doesn't look like much. Uh, It's got, you know, a little tip of metal on one end, like a little spear, and then it has a chisel, kind of an axe head on the other end. And yet with this, it says he struck down 600 Philistines. Now, it could have been that it happened at one time in one place, as we'll see when we get to Judges 15, where Samson kills a thousand of the enemy with the jawbone of a donkey. Or it could be that what we're reading here is a cumulative total, where what it's telling us is that over a course of time, he killed 600 of the enemy. Imagine you're a farmer in the field, and you're out there plowing, and suddenly you see a raiding party coming down a creek bed or down the backcountry road. And it says as he's at his job, as he's just going about his day-to-day business, this common everyday guy with a common everyday tool in his hand, the Spirit of God comes over him. He's empowered by God, and he goes, and he attacks and wipes out the enemy. Now, whether it happened all at once or a little bit at time, what, what we see here is how God can use us right where we are with the basic stuff that's in, in our hands Whether we're facing a big battle or a little one, as we go through our day, we can turn to God and ask him for his help. 
Isaiah 40, 29 through 31 tells us he gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Friends, are you feeling weary today? Are you feeling powerless? As you look at the world in which we live, as you watch the news, as you hear what's happening in the schools, as you serve in the military and see the the things that are happening there, do you say, what can I do? God says, well, if you'll put your life in my hands, I can use you. I can use you with whatever limitation you think you have. Ehud was a man who had what some would say was a severe limitation, but in God's hands it became his greatest ability. Shamgar was a peasant. He didn't have wealth or power, and yet God used this common man with a common tool to do great things. Next week when we get to uh, the next part of Judges, we're going to see how God uses two women to deliver the nation. He'll take a housewife who uses common everyday tools that she would have had in her hand to tempt peg and a hammer, and she takes out the, the commander of the enemy army. God doesn't need great tools in your hands. He just needs a heart that has been given to him. As you look at your life today, are you willing to place yourself in God's hands and say, here I am, God, use me? As we end today, we're going to come to the communion table. As we come to the communion table, it reminds us of God's great victory over sin, death, and Satan. It reminds us that the biggest enemy we would ever face, God has already conquered through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And so as we come to the communion table today, it's a reminder to you of who God is and what he's done for you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to this table. You don't have to be a member of Wayside. You just have to be a member of the family of God. So as you came in, if you didn't get a communion element, if you'll just raise your hand, the ushers will bring you one uh, so that you can participate in communion with us. Just keep your hand up. There's some in the center here. And uh, I see one on the back row over here, Hank, that needs an element. And as we're preparing, we need to prepare our hearts as well. The Bible tells us to, to confess our sins, to come with clean hands and hearts, so to speak. So if there are some things in your life that this past week, this past month or longer, there's still a bunch of hands right here in the center aisle that need communion elements. Rick, over here. Uh, if you're somebody who has not yet had time to confess your sins, use this time. Say to God, I'm sorry, there's some things in my life that haven't been right. I recognize that I need to turn back to you and ask Jesus to be the Savior of your life if you've never invited him. The Bible tells us if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. So I invite you today to turn from your sin and to turn to God and say, I need your son to be my Savior and accept his death in your place. As you peel this top plastic off, it'll expose the little wafer And this piece of bread represents Jesus Christ, who is called the bread of life. The one who came and took on flesh and blood so he could go to the cross and take on the penalty of death that I owe and you owe for your sins. As we turn to Christ, as we accept his death in our place, we're welcomed into the family. We're made a son or a daughter of his. 
And so today we're reminded, as I said, of the greatest victory that's ever been won. How you and I were purchased from sin and death by our Savior, Jesus Christ. The bread of life, Jesus Christ, he did in remembrance of him. As you peel back this next top, be careful so you don't spill that. And what we have here is grape juice. But it's much more than grape juice. What it represents is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The one who shed his blood for you and me. The book of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And it also tells us that the blood of bulls and goats and other sacrifices of the past could not remove the penalty of sin. Only Jesus could do that. That's why in John 1.29, as John the Baptist saw Christ coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus died for you and me. He shed his blood to wash away your sins and mine. The blood of Jesus, drink it in remembrance of him. Join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your great love for us. Love that was demonstrated through the death of your son. Love that was shown, as Romans 5, 8 says, even while we were yet sinners, you, Christ, died for us. Lord, we thank you for sending a deliverer, a savior. We thank you for the rest that we can have, not just for eternity when we get home to heaven, but even in the midst of this broken, sin-filled world that we live in, that as we place ourselves fully in your hands, uh, you close those hands around us, as you tell us in John 10, 28 and 29. And nothing can snatch us out of your hands. We thank you, God, not only for the salvation we have, but the security. And as those, God, who are sheltered in the midst of the storm, you don't call us just to hunker down, but you call us to go into the world around us, to our schools, our workplaces, the bases we serve, the neighborhoods in which we live, to be your messengers of peace and grace. So as we leave today, God, would you use us? Would we uh, be empowered by you? Would we look around and see how we as common everyday people can be used in amazing ways as we place ourselves in your hands. Thank you again for your son, Jesus. Thank you for your death and resurrection that saves us from our sins. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for filling and empowering us. Use us now as your people as we go into the world. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.